0: A warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and we are continuing Guy Talk today. It is uh, time for your questions. Let me know what you have. The power panel will do their very best to answer your question. I know you got one 877 933 2484. We love all questions. Um, all right, here's a question that came in. Uh, I should introduce my panel here. The same guys that were here last hour, if you can believe it uh, Jeff Redorn, Greg Borgond, and Tom Parrish. Gentlemen, so uh, this question, I think, has to do between Paul and um, James about Mm -hmm. uh, it is by grace you've been saved. That's in Ephesians 2, 8. Not from yourself. It's the gift of God. While James chapter 2 says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? So I guess we're just trying to look at the difference between
1: Paul and James. Yes. Um, this is an interesting uh, juxtaposition of Paul. First of all, Paul's talking about what, is it, what does it take to become saved. In other words, he's saying it's not by works. It says, for by it's the grace of God you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. James is not talking about salvation in terms of conversion. He's talking about what salvation looks like after you're converted. So in other words, he's saying there should be fruit befitting repentance. That's James' whole argument. He's saying, show me your faith by what, um, uh, show me your faith, I'll show you my faith by what I do. In other words, I'll demonstrate that my faith is real by how I live my life. Mm-hmm. So James is talking about what should follow conversion, where Paul is talking about what you need to be converted. Mm. You know, in, in James, I think the,
2: king james version and a couple other versions when it talks about james in chapter two there it says faith without works is dead and a lot of english translations use that word dead and it's commonly then understood or the reader might think that oh if you don't have any works you're dead you're not saved Um, the NIV actually, I think captures the heart of this word, this Greek word a little better where it says faith without deeds is useless. In other words, you're being unproductive. You're not being fruitful for God. And James is saying, you should be fruitful. You should be productive. Isn't that what the vine and the branches and James in, in John chapter 15 says that you should be abiding in Christ and bearing much fruit. That's what James is saying. And and so James and Paul are not in conflict with each other. In fact, if you go back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the next verse after he describes this salvation, this conversion, Greg, that you just described, he says, verse 10, for we are, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Yeah. So once we're
1: saved, we should be bearing fruit for God. In in my ministry, uh, Heart of Warrior Ministries, uh, Phase 1, which is the compass where we talk about the calibration of the heart, I tell men all the time, I said, in Western culture, nobody really cares what you have to say. In other words, you could demonstrate your faith by your verbiage, by putting together a proclamation, but if there isn't a correlation between what you say you believe and how you live, Then it's useless. So I say to them, nobody cares what you have to say until they observe how you live. And if you live a life of integrity and honor and authenticity, people will ultimately want to hear what you have to say, even if they disagree with you. Why? Because they can't get past a life well lived. And so James is talking about how to live life well and that how we live our life will underscore the significance of the faith we say we hold. You know, it's interesting.
3: I've got two phrases. You know, the Bible has Old Testament, New Testament. Well, I have two phrases that I really like. The first one is for a non-believer, And, of course, it's the grace of the Lord that opens us up to spiritual reality. But the phrase is, you know, are you willing to surrender? Will you surrender to Jesus? I mean, that's what we're called to do. But then after you surrender, everything from that point on is how thankful are you? And that goes to giving money, that goes to giving time, that goes to serving other people. It is all based on thankfulness. And I think James is in that, talking about that there. He uses the term works. But our works are simply a result of our thankfulness. If we do it out of duty, because we've got to get it done, and if we don't get it done, we're going to get in trouble, there's no thankfulness to that. Right. You're just putting in your time. But when you're doing it out of thankfulness, that is where the Holy Spirit multiplies the effort. And multiplies the change in people's lives, so my attitude with with Christians has always been this i i it's not an issue of if you're tithing or you're doing no that that's our law. The question is how thankful are you and some will go way beyond what we normally think. isn't that exactly the picture
2: from the vine and the branches I mean as you describe it as being thankful, but as we Come to God as we put our faith in Him, as we trust in Him, as we abide in Him, as we fix our eyes on Him, He will bear the fruit. I, I, I wanna there's a phrase that is used and I I don't like the phrase. I don't think it's accurate or biblical. It says some will say, if there's no fruit, then there's no root, right? If you don't see any fruit, then there can't be any root. We are saved by faith, not by fruit. It's faith that saves you. Now, once you're saved, God wants you to be very fruitful, but our
3: fruitfulness does not save us. Exactly. The basic problem with human beings, and and I'm going to make a confession here, guys. The basic problem is that I want to be in control. And we're always looking for a way to do it our way. And the Bible says it doesn't work that way. We do it Jesus way, and then we live thankfully for what he's done. And that's your entire motivation from this point on. All
0: right. Luke 16, verses 19 to 33, Lazarus and the rich man. Do you think Jesus is giving us a warning of hell for the nonbeliever? The rich man had most of his senses. He had memory. He could hear and see Abraham. His tongue was burning, but he could not cross back over because of the chasm. I take this passage literally. I do, too. Some will call this a
2: parable. Um, there's no parable language in this account, and there's no other parable where you have a named character. And we have a named character here. So I think this is a description of a place called Hades, which Luke 16 specifically describes. And is it a warning? Wow. Yes, it is a warning. Remember at the end of the story, that the rich man is trying to receive comfort from Father Abraham and Lazarus, and he says, No, you're over there and we're over here and you're in torment and we're in comfort and there's no crossing between the two. This story, by the way, does not justify the 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 notion of some kind of purgatory that you can cross over after death and change your change your destiny. No, that's not possible. But at the end of the story, he says, Well then at least send Lazarus back to my house and warn my brothers, I think it says, or family, about this place, right? Warn them. And Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen, even if someone rises from the dead. Well, guess what? Someone rose from the dead, and they still did not believe.
3: I recognize it's not biblical, and it can't be proved biblically, but I've been with a number of people that have had hell experiences, who have had a heart attack, who have drowned, who have whatever it may be, and then were brought back. And what's interesting about that is that, and they all told me, I, I said, I, I always, always ask this question, you know, well, how did you get out of hell? And they kept saying, well, I said, I kept yelling, God save me, God save me. But I kept going deeper, and it was worse and worse. And I said, well, then how'd you get out? I finally yelled out, Jesus, save me. And I was suddenly in the recovery room, or, or maybe. Now, what strikes me about that is this. Have you ever had a bad dream in your life? Mm -hmm. You know, um, during my college years, I didn't, but too many of my friends went on LSD trips. But, you know, once they came out of the LSD trip and they were shaken for a few days afterward, it did not change their lives. These experiences that I run into of people who have these hell experiences, it changes their lives. And every single one of them has become a Christian and is out there telling other people to be right with the Lord. All right,
2: gentlemen, let's... One see. more verse real quick to back that up. I was looking for it. Hebrews 10 says that uh, if you reject this salvation, what's all that's left? And and Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire. Yeah. Right? So is is Luke 16 a warning to those
0: who don't believe? Absolutely. Uh, scripture also says it's appointed for man to die once and after that judgment. All right, now we're up against break. So when I come back, we've had a little uh, question that's been asked by a topic we've already covered. And we're going to get to that when we come back. We're looking for your question, 877-933-2484. Text it over and we'll get it on the air. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Jeff Verdorn, Greg Borgond, and Tom Parrish are my power panel today. Be right back. Oh, life can be filled with distractions. I saw a survey that said the average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions and let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines practiced by Jesus himself. You can sign up for this free study now at myfaithradio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at myfaithradio.com. All right, I'm back with lots more God Talk. So glad you're joining me today. Just uh, climbed in the car or flipped on the radio. I hope your day has been great to this point. I I, I pray for all listeners. I think when I get up and come to work, I don't know who's going to tune in today, but I really, really, really pray that your depth of knowledge and, and wisdom grows every day and you get closer to the Lord and love Him more and that you hate sin more. And that you uh, grow into a deeper understanding of him. So, all right, gentlemen, here's a little pushback from something. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says that when the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised to be joined with Christ. You've been saying that when you die, you go to be immediately with Christ. Seems like typical rose colored glasses and picking the verses in the Bible that are most palatable with your paradigms. Correct me if I'm wrong.
2: Well, well, can I start? Go ahead, Jeff. All right, I got I, it. I want to get in here, too. I know. <laughs> First, I, the, the the question is correct in that if we we're going to set a doctrine about something, we should look at what all Scripture says. Yes. Um, so that's number one. Uh, scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. So if you're going to develop a theology of death and where we go and, and the resurrection and so on, we have to look at what all Scripture says. So that is true. That is absolutely true. First Corinthians 15 is describing the resurrection of the body. What we were talking about earlier is that our soul, the moment we are, the de- moment we die, we will be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. So that is a, a an existence in soul, not in body. What first Corinthians 15 is talking about is a future day. A future resurrection day when all believers, both those who have died in Christ and are in heaven right now, and those who are alive and remain at the trumpet sound, will receive a resurrected glorified body. So so listen, 1 Corinthians 15 here, it says this. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant a body that will be just, uh, but will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. What fifth, chapter 15 of first Corinthians is describing is this new, resurrected, glorified body. So whether or not you're right now in heaven, dead in Christ, like Paul is in Christ in heaven, uh, right now, without his physical body and without a resurrected body, or us who are alive and remain right now who are still in our physical body, there's a future day when we will receive a glorified body that will be imperishable, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15.
3: And Jesus affirms this because when he says about, you know, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and body, he's got those four divisions, the body is not the soul, and the soul is not the body. So when we're talking about being in the presence of the Lord, our soul is immediately with him. He says the moment you believe, you've transferred from death to life. It's instantaneous. But the body is a different matter. And so we're not just kind of theologically jamming these things together to make it sound good. Jesus teaches this, that we're made up of four divisions, and we need to understand that, and that the body will one day will be resurrected. It will have a new body, but the moment we die, we're still alive. We're in the presence of the Lord Jesus, and we will know him. And that's what people have told me over and over and over that have had near-death experiences. And just one more thing. It's, it's not, if I could push back a little bit,
2: it's not rose-colored glasses to read the promises of God to say that, that when we die, we shall still live And that one day we will receive a glorified body and have an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. He has a new heaven and new earth waiting for us. So um, it's it's not too rosy of a view or to have rose-colored glasses on to to believe the promises of God about our future, even
3: our future after we die. One thing I teach my congregation, and we did it uh, last week, um, and I really believe in this, and I call it the umbrella effect is that when you have a difficult passage, I don't care what it is, put that passage on a piece of paper and then go to your computer. I mean, we could do this now. Everybody can. And ask it to show you every passage that deals with salvation or the resurrected body or something like that. And then look at all of those passages as well and try to get a full picture of what it's talking about, not just an individual verse. Individual verses can be used and misused uh, you know, by people. It's easy to do. But when you have to look at all the context of those verses, you're forced to look at the mind of the Lord.
0: All right. Nicely done, gentlemen. All right. I was reading and have been sitting in Romans 5 12 to 21. What struck me is that several times it references Adam's sin bringing death and the sin of this one man. Why, Adam? and not Adam and Eve, or just Eve, since she ate first.
3: All right. We could go a lot of directions with this one, Uh, but the bottom line is Adam was created first, and Eve was then taken from Adam. Adam was the caretaker of the garden. He was the authority, if you want to use that terminology. It's kind of like when I'm put in charge of something at the church, if other people do something that's wrong, I'm still responsible. And I've got to address that. And the same is true with Adam. He was still responsible for what Eve did, but the burden falls on Adam as well as Eve as well. She suffered as much, but the bottom line is Adam is the one the Bible looks to. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I do. I like that too. and And I
2: think you could read, you know, at the start of that passage, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man... I think it's easy to read that as one man and one woman. They were both there. They both sinned. They both fell.
3: Mm -hmm. In the beginning, you know,
2: it says he created them male and female. But Eve came from Adam. So I I like that description a lot. All
0: right, gentlemen, uh, open to Isaiah 41, verse 13. Now, the question comes in, I saw a placard in a store had a passage from Isaiah 41, verse 13 on it. I looked up the passage and read the context of it before and after verse 13, and it appears that it's been taken out of context. What are your guys' thoughts? A verse taken out of context? Oh that would never happen, would it? Of course not. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um,
2: I would have liked to have heard what the listener thought the false context is and what
0: the true context is. well, we don't have that luxury, but yep. as I look at the verse and it seems like it's for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. That's the verse.
2: Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm looking at the immediate context in the chapter and you know, it's a, it's a lot about... God telling Israel that I I am he, I am with you. So do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I'm your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you. Uh, I am the Lord, your God. I will help you. So um, I'm the Holy One, the Redeemer of Israel. I mean, it's, it's this whole chapter is full of God's promises that says, I'm your God. You're my people. So I don't know I don't. Know, that's my. I guess well, my
0: question is, what's the what's the bad context? No, it's not a bad context, but it's it's one of those verses that seems to be um, taken out of context to use for a purpose. Like you know, sometimes you'll see uh, Philippians four thirteen. I have the strength to face all conditions. So you know, you read that verse before you know it's it's fourth and goal, so I can have the energy to get the touchdown, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And th- that's t- you're taking it out of context. Right. And I think his point is. I uh, hear again, when you see a verse and it's used and it's probably out of context, how do you feel about that?
3: I'm always leery. You know, I know years ago they came out with the uh, the, the uh, Promise Bible, if you remember that, and it had a promise for every circumstance of life from the scriptures. So if you were hurting, it had a scripture verse and that, um, and, it's, and it's nice to do that. But every one of those is taken out of its context. doesn't mean it's wrong. But if you don't read what comes before it and what comes after it, you can get into trouble. I understand people like to put up verses like this. They're comforting words. They're good words to hear. Uh, but in terms of don't build your theology around a single verse without looking at
1: what comes before and after, it's probably a pretty healthy thing to do. Yet at the same time, what we have to appreciate is the Word of God is living and active. Yeah. God could take this verse 13 And speak to somebody's soul. I don't care if it was placed on a pillow or on a plaque, because it's the power of the Word of God. He can use it. And, you know, when I finally came to Christ, standing over my daughter's crib, it was one verse that I remembered reading in the book of Romans, my gifts are meant to lead you to repentance, thinking about the gift of my my beautiful daughter, our beautiful daughter, we knew we couldn't have any more children, and I had... We were married by a Presbyterian minister. I wasn't saved at the time. Gave us this Bible and our Revised Standard Version. And I'm always curious, so I read a lot of it and then put it back into the tissue, into the box. (laughs) God's Word did not return void for me. That one passage made all the sense to me. So God can take a verse like this and can speak profoundly and deeply without us consulting the whole Word of God. But as a student of the Word of God, we take all of the Word of God as context. Well, here's, and I absolutely
3: agree with you. Greg is right on the money. A verse like that can absolutely speak to an individual. I've seen the Lord do it. He's done it with me. But to take a verse like that and now make it a universal statement that, hey, if we get invaded by another country, don't worry, the Lord's going to take care of everything and you're going to be just fine, is usually where we wind up going with these verses instead of understanding that We have to understand what the Lord's going to do, and that some of us, I mean, my son said it very well. Uh, We were going to go overseas, and a plane crashed right before we left, and I think he was 10. He says, don't tell me there weren't any Christians on that airplane. Well, of course there were. You know, we can't control always the outcome, but we know who has the outcome. And the Scripture verse can speak to us individually. But I'm leery of putting it over everybody at that moment and saying, no matter what you're facing, the Lord will take care of it and you'll be just fine.
1: There's another point to be made with this. the, the Taking it out of context that I do agree is wrong is when you already have an agenda and you're cherry-picking yes. a verse mm-hmm. to get it to support a decision that you've already made or a proclamation you're about to make. All right. We're going to take a little break and then come back with lots
0: more Guy Talk Great questions coming in. Thank you for taking the time to send your questions via text over to the show. The number to do that is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. we got plenty of time for your questions. Send it over. Guy Talk panel today is Jeff Ferdorn, Greg Borgond, and Tom Parrish. We'll be right back. All right, we're back with Guy Talker, Guys Who Talk, Jeff Verdorn, Greg Borgon, Tom Parrish. They are poised and ready to go. They've been at it now for a while, and they're doing a great job. Here's a question, gentlemen. Let's see. I had it, and I lost it. How did that get away from me so fast? Um, <laughs> I had it all queued up, and now it, it went away. Hmm. All right, let's see. Um, I'm very sorry about this. I had it all set to go. Ah, Here it is. Children being exposed to drag shows at libraries, community centers, etc. A friend said it's a great opportunity for her kids to explore their sexuality. I'm horrified by this. How would you respond to this?
1: What sexuality are they exploring? Being a drag queen? I mean, let's be honest. Let's be specific about sexuality. It makes it sound so altruistic. Well, I want them to learn about sexuality, so I'm going to take them to a drag queen show. I mean, that's not sexuality. That's an aberration of sexuality, in my view. Sorry, I'm kind of strong on that no, issue. Absolutely. Well, we're with you.
3: We are. Well, it creates confusion for kids. Kids can't process this information when they're 8, 9, 10 years old. Um, I couldn't even process well when I was 19. So, you know, I'm very leery about this kind of stuff. When the parents endorse something, like taking them to a drag show at the library and the officials who allow that to happen and the staff of the library that brings it in. I see that it's, I'll be honest, it's child abuse. It is simply child abuse and it is an abomination to the Lord because these kids, here's what I hate. And I, I'm a pastor. I didn't know I was going into counseling when I went in to preach the gospel, but you do a lot of counseling as a pastor. I hear the stories afterward I hear the kids that grew up with this or were exposed to this and now they're 30, 40, 50 years old and they're so confused and they're so bewildered and they're so angry because they got terribly confused about their life and about their sexuality, about everything else. And yet do you see the news talking about these things. Do you see the woke community talking about the after effects to these people? So, folks, you're only getting half the story when these are out here in the news and everything else about how wonderful this is. The other half of the story is pretty ugly, but nobody wants to talk about it.
1: Yeah, and the responsibility isn't on the child, it's on the parent. That's and the right. parent is going to be judged for that. In Matthew 18, verses 5 through 9, we have this um, uh, scripture that, that talks to the as: Whoever receives one such child of my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. And so consequently, if you don't have any moral compass and you feel that you can expose your child to anything because all knowledge is good knowledge, then what you've done is you've bought into a situational ethic that's going to have huge ramifications not only for you but for your child. And so consequently, if you don't have a plumb line where truth really is, then you're not going to know how you're deviating from it. So, I mean, that's a strong condemnation right Mm. there, uh, exposing uh, uh, children to people who dress up to be somebody that they're not. I mean, when you come to Jesus Christ, you come to the foot of the cross, and you hand over to him who you thought you were, and he gives you back your true self, your true humanity. Yeah. That's what you receive. So um, it, it, it's just, i it, it's amazing to me the proliferation of this in, in the U.S. right now. I think we're
2: going to need a lot more millstones for one. <laughs> what in the world are we doing even Bringing up the topic of sexuality with these young children. I don't care if you are going to talk about heterosexual sex, homosexual sex, transsex, whatever it is. Why, why are we introducing the idea of sexuality to these young children? They need to be innocent to this stuff until the proper time and you know you could debate when that time is i remember in 6th grade going to biology class and learning about the birds and the bees and and maybe that's an appropriate time to start introducing people to the biology of sexuality but what they are pushing pushing is a is one it's sinful behavior number number 1 and we don't want to be pushing that on people um, just because of the passage that you just read, um so what's can can we can we I, I, it, it just astounds me that we are pushing the sexuality on such young children. I guess that 's the the biggest thing and that when you introduce the birds
3: and the bees too early to kids they get stung we had uh, a woman, I, We had a woman give a testimony on sunday she 's now in her sixties, and she said when I was fifteen years old, I was pregnant for my first child. And she said, I was not prepared to be a mother. I was not prepared to give guidance or anything else. But she said I was in a culture that didn't care. And she said, I've had to learn to forgive my parents, the other people that abused me, and all that went on. And I'll tell you, honestly, guys, there wasn't a dry eye in the place.
1: When a child is young, a parent has a responsibility not just to them but for them. They don't have the defense mechanisms to counter the argument or understand the the subtle differences or even the dramatic differences they're like sponges they soak everything up yeah. and it resides in their soul so what you've just done is uh... introduced toxins into the soul of a child in my view when you exposed them to such uh... perversity well, why don't we just give
0: eight-year-olds driver's license Do you want to be on the road with an eight-year-old driving a car <laughs> No, we
2: were talking about this right. earlier in terms of parenting on on, at what age different ideas, topics and reasoning is appropriate. And you're exactly right. We have for a long time understood that certain subjects uh, sh- should be kept away from children, certain responsibilities. We don't let children enter into contracts. We don't let children vote. We don't let children do a lot of things Um in the same way children should be kept innocent. to the the evils of this world for as long as possible.
3: I'm on the road enough, and I think there are eight-year-olds driving out there. They may look 40 or 50, (laughs) but the driving is just terrible. All right, here's a
0: question uh, from Acts chapter 2. This is when the church was established by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is this not considered the pattern of salvation for all time? Acts chapter 2, when the church was established by the power of... Of the Holy Spirit. Why is this not considered the pattern of salvation for all time? Well, I would comment that the birth of the church was unique in history.
2: So, this is the first time that the Holy Spirit would come upon people and indwell them, make them new, seal them with the Holy Spirit, uh, make people born again, made a, make them a new creation. This all happened for the first time in that upper room with the, with the coming of the Holy Spirit as, as described in Acts chapter 2. Remember, salvation is always by faith. Everybody in the Old Testament was saved by faith, but nobody in the Old Testament was born again, nor did they receive the promised Holy Spirit as Jesus promised that he will be with you forever. That started in Acts 2. So it, it's, it can't be a pattern for the church. It was the birth of the church. But I would argue that the, the, as miraculous as Acts chapter 2, that miracle still happens today every time someone believes
0: and is saved and is filled with the Holy Spirit. All right. Um, Here's a question. I often share my experiences with friends of God speaking to my heart or mind during prayer or Bible reading or driving. Sometimes the messages are very specific. Sometimes I wonder if my Christian friends share this experience of hearing God's voice. How would you explain or express your interactions with the
3: voice of God? Having worked with the charismatic movement, Quite a bit, mm-hmm. and good friends with a lot of uh, Charismatics, Pentecostals, uh, Lutherans that are Charismatic, um, and I served a church that was highly Charismatic. My attitude is um, it's, it can be real, the Lord can speak to you, but be cautious, because oftentimes my voice can sound just like the Lord's, depending on how bad things are or how would I want my life. So what I've learned to do is that when I believe I have a group of elders at our church, we have three elders and I trust them. So if I feel the Lord has said to me, Tom, you need to, you know, when I'm praying, you need to start this ministry over here. I go and lay that before them. And unless they receive that word from the Lord, we don't do it because I'm not going to be out there just foisting what I believe the Lord is saying and disregarding everybody else because he still works through the whole church. And so I trust other Christians to come back. So when somebody comes and says to me, Pastor, I had a word from the Lord that uh, you should let so-and-so preach for the next eight weeks. I'll say, okay, Hmm. I hear what you're saying. But the Bible says that unless there are two witnesses, it's not valid. So I'm waiting for the other person to come forward. And they better not have
1: talked to you. You know, if the Lord wants that, he can do it. Good word. You you know, I've had, when I was an executive pastor of of, a church, I was executive pastor actually of two different churches that, but I had people come to me and say, I, I have a word of the Lord for you that this is what I believe the Lord wants you to do. And I said, Do you believe God is omnipotent? Yeah. Do you believe he's omnipresent? Yeah. Do you believe he's omniscient? Yeah. Don't you think he has the capability to let me know what he just told you? <laughs> I haven't heard that word yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, it sounds a little sarcastic, but the idea is, is that God, if you're hearing God's voice, remember it's a still small voice. It's a profound voice, and Elijah experienced it. And the reason he speaks so profoundly in a still small voice is it forces you to lean forward to hear it. But if you're hearing it, It's going to square with the word of God. The first Mm -hmm. thing you should be doing is going back to the word of God to make sure it's not a contradiction of what's already in Scripture. Of
3: course. Mm -hmm. Good
1: word. That's exactly what you
2: need to do. I was going to say God speaks to us in many ways. First and foremost is his word by other believers that you described, Tom, as well Um, by that still small voice as well. Um, so look, it, through circumstances, I think God speaks to us. You know, some will say, does God still speak to his people today? And it's like, oh my goodness, yes. If you're not hearing from God, then you're not listening for him so, or and seeking him. So through his word, through other believers, through that Holy Spirit who dwells within every believer, through faith radio, through
0: lots of ways, God will speak to you if you are listening. Mm-hmm. All right, a pastor has been preaching that David was sinful when he ran from Saul, who was seeking to kill David. This pastor thinks David should have stayed and trusted God for protection. I've never heard someone say this. I say David was being prudent. What
1: do you say? Well, absolutely. I mean, David had the wherewithal. He could have killed him in the cave. He right. could have killed Saul in the cave. Yeah, And all he did was clip off a... a, a heard of his garment to prove the fact that he could have taken his life and he didn't. So it wasn't that he was recognizing, g- by the way, that Saul was the authority that yes. God has put in place. So yeah. it wasn't that he was afraid of Saul and ran from Saul or that God wasn't protecting him. Sometimes God's protect- protection is what he's telling you to do to go to that cave. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I just don't believe that that uh, you put yourself in the middle of danger and say, all right, Lord, it's your job now to protect me. I mean, you have to do everything you can within your own capacity to remove yourself from um, from, a, from a danger instead of trying to test God and say, I'm going to stay in the middle of it, and you, you better save me. So, I mean, that's testing God. Sometimes there's just good common sense.
3: <laughs> I, I actually had somebody ask me years ago, do you think the Lord will protect me when I'm praying? If I close my eyes while I'm driving my car, I said, what? <laughs> they, they said, well, will the Lord protect me?
2: Don't do I, that I, now, I by said, the way, if you're driving. No, yes, you don't, don't, no. don't do
3: that. You know, I mean, there are certain common sense things we have to live by, and that isn't one of them. You know, it just, no, don't close your eyes. David had a lot of other sins he had to deal with. I don't see that as a sin, but he also knew you shall not kill the Lord's anointed. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right, we'll take a short, short break. And when we come back, more Guide Talk, 877-933-2484. Thank you for joining us today. We love having you. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. If you have questions about Jesus or want to chat with someone about it, text FAITH to 41224. That's text FAITH to 41224 and god bless you i think that's appropriate bumper music for the last segment of guy talk <laughs> i like it don't you feels like cartoonish doesn't it it does yeah look at that i like it
3: <laughs> i can see the roadrunner now mm-hmm. can wiley you? coyote yeah. i
0: yeah. love it i can see some car racing off in the dust yeah. yeah. There we go. All right, more <laughs> guy talk. We have uh, time for a few more questions. Is the sign of the beast literal, or does it mean putting something before God during that time or something else? You
2: have to decide very quickly when you read uh, the prophetic book of Revelation whether or not these are actual events that are going to come up on the earth or whether or not you're going to spiritualize all of these events and just call it some kind of cosmic battle um between good and evil well i'd like to point out that revelation 19 anyway is the return of jesus christ to earth Mm -hmm. i think that's a literal event that is going to come upon the world acts chapter one said jesus is going to come back the same way he that he left by the way he's coming back to the same spot he went up to heaven and from the mount of olives he's going to come back and his feet will stand on the mount of olives uh so I think we can look at these future events and say these are literal events. Now, there's symbolic language in Revelation. There's a lot of symbolic language, sure. but the events that they describe are going to be literal. So I think there will be a literal Antichrist who is going to in some way be uh, have a, have a one-world type of government – I think he is going to set up himself in the temple of God and declare himself to be God, just as Paul described, and just as Jesus described in Matthew 24, he's going to set up an abomination of desolation in the temple of God. Um, so these events, I believe, are going to come, and that includes some kind of mark of the beast so that you cannot buy or sell unless you have that mark.
3: And the bottom line to the whole thing is, and to, to the listeners, be right with Jesus today, because we can't control what's going to happen out there. But when it comes, if you know Jesus, you're in good shape mm-hmm. all right, let's see uh why
0: didn't Adam stop Eve?
3: <laughs> they were married <laughs> that's yes the, thro- dear. That's the short yes, answer that's the short answer, Tom Parrish <laughs> the- I don't think
2: that's in my n i
3: v study Bob probably, Bob. Not. <laughs> probably not probably not. With well, the impression you get i 'm sorry, but I, I just i couldn 't miss that A little one. punchy aren't I have, I have, you know two hours without pizza it 's getting too <laughs> much. but but the impression you get when the the snake, the serpent Satan himself, tempts Eve is that she 's alone there at the tree you don 't hear anything about Adam, yeah. then she goes and takes the fruit to Adam, so the impression is that in the garden they were separate at that moment. Because up to that point, they'd always had peace. There was no fear going anywhere. No lion was going to jump out and grab you. No snake was going to bite you in that sense. But she bought into the lie of knowing, being like God, knowing good and evil. That's right.
2: Yeah, First Timothy 2.14 says, And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And then, of course, obviously, Adam also ate of the fruit of the Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and also then fell, and so all mankind, because we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, have are all born or 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 come to life as a in Adam original sin sinner separated from God. So I actually agree. This is a kind of a theological point: was Adam there or not? And I think when you read it carefully and follow it through, if Adam was there, there's no he doesn't say anything. Right? He doesn't protect her in any way. He doesn't say, no, God told us not to, whatever. And so in I, I've come to the conclusion that I don't think he was there. I think the serpent deceived Eve, and then in some way, shape, or form afterwards,
0: Adam also ate of the fruit. There's a, a, a little bit of a pause. Anybody else want to jump in on that? I thought that Adam and Eve were both together when the temptation happened. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of the traditional
2: view that they were both there. But if you read the account, it doesn't demand it. It says that, and the man that was with her, and that's the phrase that is keyed upon that we, we uh, tend to then think that Adam was with her right there being tempted by the serpent. Um, I think it's a more general description of Adam who was there in the garden with her. But if Adam was there when Satan is talking to Eve as a serpent and tempting her. Why doesn't he say anything? Why doesn't Scripture record anything? And why doesn't he stop her mm-hmm. from doing it? I so. mean,
1: it, it? In Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, mm-hmm. not to, to Adam, but mm-hmm. to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent... We may eat of the fruit of the of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the, the tree was, now this is interesting, she he, he talks, she talks, the passage talks about the three primary areas that all humankind are tempted in. Mm. Listen, listen to this passage. For God knew, eat of the, we'll open, you will be like God. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Mm-hmm. To your point, Bill? Was with her and he ate. Now, what does that mean? Why would it say that he was with her in a generic sense when there were only two in the garden? So maybe the passage is saying that he was with her during that time. So, I mean, I'm just reading what the passage is. Yeah, it. sure. Yeah, so it's,
2: the question is everything leading up to that last part there where it says he was with her is all about the woman. Adam yeah. is not mentioned. Serpentist seems to be talking to the woman. Adam doesn't seem to be part of the picture. And then after she eats it, then there's the line that she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate it. So you have to decide. The theological debate was, was he, does that mean he was with her right there when Satan was talking to her? Or was he with her in the garden and she brought some to him and he also did eat it? So.
1: It's not the first time that a man is not listening to what's going on with, with the wife <laughs> in a conversation. And maybe that's the beginning of our problem. <laughs>
2: So, yeah. So, the, but it's, a, it's an interesting discussion. And, and I have taught this in classes, right? As, as you just described it, that Adam was not there. And I always, it's interesting to me because I always get a little pushback. It's like, no, Adam had to be there. Why? Why, why is that fundamental to the, to the question of original sin and the fall of mankind? Is it, is it really fundamental or is it just the way that we've taught it? In other words, it's fundamental that they both ate of this fruit. Uh, but the timing, basically, which is this, is a question of, and who was deceived? Remember, I just read from Timothy that it was the woman who was deceived, not Adam. Paul writes, "If Adam would have been there also, wouldn't a description of him also being deceived by the by the serpent's craftiness also apply?"
3: I just looked at the Hebrew in a linear, and the words "who was with her" are not in Hebrew. It just said she gave some to her husband. So, the translators added that phrase to it. There may be an implication there may be an implication in the word "husband." there may be a part of the the verb there that somehow says about action, but i don 't see it so that 's where one of the problems comes in and all the translators are trying to do is to make it more understandable, but that doesn 't always mean that 's why i 've always looked at a variety of translations as well as the Hebrew and the yeah. Greek because I don't want to be teaching you something that it's not saying. But it says it makes, it literally says, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate it. No time frame, no nothing there. That's what the actual Hebrew words say.
1: Well, when you talk about rules of interpretation in Scripture, one of the things you do, you don't build a doctrine based on the absence of information. Right. So if we haven't got the information in here that uh, uh, you know tells us that he wasn't physically there... It's hard to go ahead and raise the argument that he was there. So uh, I, in any case, you can't build a doctrine based on the absence of information, only the the presence of it.
3: I, I look at Adam. Adam was a lot like me. He was stupid, <laughs> you know, and he knew
1: better, and yet he did
3: it anyway. And isn't that the problem with most of us? Isn't, but isn't this an interesting discussion?
2: I mean, we can wrestle with these passages, and we can have disagreements about things like this. But what's the main point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is the main truth that we we come to in Genesis chapter 3? And that is is that God made man as well, as well as all of his creation good, that Satan is a deceiver, he lies, that's his native tongue as he's described in Scripture, and that mankind fell and became sinful, separated from God, and now we need a Redeemer
0: who that's will right. be the Christ. Amen. A comment just that came in, if Adam had not eaten...
1: It, where would we be with the fall? Oh, that's, you see, that's hypothetical. Yeah, Again, it's argue. arguing from the absence of information, yeah. and so um it, it's hard to go ahead and say what would happen because it didn't happen. This is what really happened.
0: Yeah, that's not going. It's, it's really
1: right. It's really hard to talk about what ifs in scripture.
2: I'd rather deal in the what is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. I think we got a couple guys considering uh, spaghetti tonight and one guy having, <laughs> one guy having meat so uh, I don't know what I'm having yet but thank you so much for spending time with us for Guide Talk we've loved being with you we hope you got some answers and oh, we're looking forward to doing it again next week get your questions over anytime you want have a great night and we'll see you tomorrow